Welcome to Australian Basketball Coach. I'm your host, Anthony Corcoran. Uh, welcome to Australian Basketball Coach. Today I've got Alan Stein, a world-renowned coach, speaker and author. I've been following Alan myself for about, I'd say, 10 to 12 years, and I'm just thrilled today to have Alan on the on the podcast. So welcome, Alan. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's great to finally connect. Yeah, it's great. Alan spent 15 years working with the highest performing basketball players on the planet, and now he's in a sphere where he's teaching audiences how to utilize strategies in business and also the strategies that elite athletes use to perform at a world-class level. So like I said, it's a real privilege to have a chat with you today, Alan. Looking forward to seeing the parallels between basketball and, and, and leadership and management and how those things cross over. Absolutely. That's going to be fun. I mean, I, I'm just stoked with, you know, we, we're living in an age now where you're literally on the other side of the globe. It's a completely different day. It's a completely different time of day. And we're still able to have this chat and that we only connected because of social media. And I, I just think that's a neat thing. And, and that's one of the, the positives, I believe, that we could all and should all be using to help grow the game. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, like, well, I guess with the exposure that basketball and particularly the NBL and some of the stuff that's happening here in Australia with um, the players that are coming over to play, like, yeah, we, we're probably getting some of the best exposure we, we've ever had in terms of uh, the players and, and the, the profile of the sport. So, Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, great time for basketball. Yeah, it sure is. One of the things I usually do with my guests, Alan, I sort of go back to the start and talk about, you know, where it all started for you in terms of your involvement with, with basketball. And so I'd probably just like to throw it over to you. When, when did you get involved? When did you start playing? Uh, have you always been a basketball sort of guy? Have you done other stuff as well? Yeah, you know what's neat is, I mean, basketball was really my first identifiable passion. I mean, I, I fell in love with the game at probably four or five years old when my parents signed me up for my very first uh, recreation team. And here four decades later, uh, basketball is still a major pillar in my life. And I'm, I'm so thankful that for my entire life, I've been able to incorporate something that I'm really passionate about. Uh, I was a very active kid, so I played and did just about every sport and activity under the sun. Um, I mean, from your conventional sports, uh, football and soccer and baseball, uh, but I also did some unconventional things like BMX biking and skateboarding and martial arts. Oh, nice. But for some reason, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it, was, it was great, and, and it's something I – you know, I, I want my own children to do, you know, I've got three young children and I encourage them to try as many different things as possible to see what sticks. And while I enjoyed anything that allowed me to expel physical energy, I always had a ton of energy. For some reason, basketball was always my clear cut favorite and it wasn't even close. I mean, I enjoyed playing soccer and I had fun playing football and I, I did like martial arts, but I loved basketball so no matter what I did I always came back to that and you know we can we can fast forward the next few years pretty quick I mean I was a decent high school player uh, was able to play in college down at Elon College uh, it's now Elon University down in North Carolina uh, and then when I was in college I started to develop an equal affinity uh, and passion for the training side uh, for strength and conditioning and fitness and performance training. Uh, so when I graduated college, uh, I decided to be a basketball performance coach and combine my old love of basketball with my new love of performance training. 
And I was in that space for almost 20 years, um, had some incredible experiences, got a chance to work with some amazing players, get mentored by some just phenomenal coaches. Uh, and then as you mentioned, about three years ago, uh, I decided to take everything I had been learning through the game uh, and expand it outside the four walls of the gym and now spend most of my time. Uh, certainly, I still speak to athletic teams and, and, and schools, but a good portion of my work is in the corporate world and teaching businesses how to utilize these same strategies that athletes use so that businesses can perform at a higher level. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I guess one of the things I was really keen to ask you about, again, a bit of a student of the game, is just that experience that you had at DeMatha High School, yes. uh, obviously with um, the godfather of basketball, Morgan Wooten. I actually saw you on a video of his, and that's why I'm saying video, that's how long ago it was. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, just for the people who might not be familiar with who Coach Wooten was, what was what was that experience like? And, and what did you learn like in terms of the approach to the game and, and, you know, that sustained success that he had over a long period of time. Yeah. Well, and just to put in context for any of your listeners that aren't familiar, Morgan Wooten was the coach at DeMatha Catholic High School for 47 years. He won over 1,200 games. Uh, when he retired, he was the winningest coach uh, in the history of high school basketball. Uh, at the time, he was one of only two high school coaches inducted to the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. Um, I mean, he's just incredibly influential. He he really was put on the map when his team at DeMatha uh, beat Power Memorial up in New York, which had a young man named Lou Alcender, who right. later became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and, and gave Kareem uh, his only loss in his entire high school career was to DeMatha in 1965. Oh, wow. And ever since then, DeMatha and, and Coach Wooten were kind of on the map. And I actually got my first experiences with Coach Wooten um, when I was probably 10 or 11 years old because I started going to his summer basketball camp. Uh, it was called the Mason-Dixon camp, and it was run by Coach Wooten and mostly DeMatha players and coaches. I mean, he certainly had some other people come in, um, but it was, it was kind of a DeMatha thing, and that was really my first experience with him. And every summer would go to his camp two or three weeks at a time because um, my parents would sign me up for multiple sessions and would really kind of learn – the DeMatha way and the way that Coach Wooten uh, believed you should teach basketball and approach the game. And that was very influential to me. Um, and then if you fast forward, uh, Mike Jones um, played for Coach Wooten. He was actually on the last DeMatha team to go undefeated. I think that was in 1991. And then went and played in college, played a little bit professionally, and then came back and was an assistant to Coach Wooten. And then he took over for Coach Wooten when he retired in 2002. And Coach Jones has been the head coach ever since. So this is probably, <coughs> I believe if my math is right, this is his 18th year as oh, the wow. head coach. Yeah. <laughs> I guess another famous coach that went through uh, DeMatha, Mike Bray as well. Yeah, Mike Bray uh, is a, has strong DeMatha ties. And, and really the DeMatha lineage is incredible. I mean, it's mm. you've got players like Markel Fultz and Victor Oladipo and Quinn Cook and Jeremy and Jerry and Grant. Um, but I mean, even outside of that, I mean, James Brown, the, uh, the, the Hall of Fame football announcer and, and on Fox Sports is a DeMatha alum. Right. David Aldridge on ESPN is a DeMatha alum. I mean, DeMatha's had some really, really, really good people, not just good basketball players. And, and it is a remarkable school. But, you know, I certainly want to say as, as legendary as Coach Wooten was and as phenomenal as he was, um, 
Mike Jones was able to step in and fill arguably the biggest shoes in history mm. and has done a phenomenal job. Coach Jones is one of the finest coaches uh, that I've, I've ever met at any level in any sport. And uh, I don't know if any of us could comprehend uh, the pressure or expectation when you're taking over a program for a coach that was there for the previous 47 <laughs> years and won 1,200 games and is in the Hall of Fame. Mm. And Coach Jones stepped in and has done a brilliant job keeping the DeMatha legacy alive. Uh, DeMatha is still one of the top programs in the country. And what I think I respect most about him is – he used his fundamental beliefs that he definitely learned from Coach Wooten and certainly has kept that framework in place, but he's not a, a Coach Wooten replica or he's not a Coach Wooten robot. You know, he, he's done things differently. He's done things the way that he believes they should be done, and I know he did that with Coach Wooten's blessing. That was the first thing Coach Wooten told him when he took over was, you know, don't try to be like me. This is your program, and you need to run it the way that you see fit, and I think he's done an awesome job of blending – the values and principles that Morgan had been doing for almost 50 years, as well as his new approach and perspective and, and just runs. I mean, I'll always be biased, but I think it's the best <laughs> high school program in the country. Oh, wow. That's great. I mean, you know, with, with that sort of sustained success though, like what is it, you know, do you think, or can you put a like finger on it in terms of character or just, you know, proven systems that work that, those coaches use that uh, gets those, you know, long results over a long period of time and also just, you know, earns the respect of, of everyone who uh, has something to do with it. Oh, absolutely. And, and you nailed it. I mean, um, it sounds so cliche and many people don't believe it. Um, but the, one of the things that makes a program like DeMatha unique, and, and it's not like they're the only program, they place a tremendous amount of value on character um, and on people that do things the right way. You mm. know, basketball has grown. I mean, clearly it's grown to a global phenomenon now. That's why you and I are having this conversation. But there's enough good players out there that you no longer have to take kids of low character. You know, if you're, if you're coming from a program that can recruit, and DeMatha is a program that can recruit its players, just like a college, you know, you don't need to recruit a kid with questionable um, character just because he's a good basketball player. You know, 30 years ago, maybe you would do that because there weren't as many good players. But in today's day and age, there's enough good players with high character that that's what's most important. But, but I'll, I'll say that, you know, one of the reasons that a coach like Mike Jones is so good is um, he understands how important it is to create a connection with his players and to earn their buy-in and their belief in and their trust and respect. Uh, he makes sure that the players know that he cares about them as human beings first and as basketball players second. Yeah. You know, that if there was any kid at DeMatha, no matter how good they were, if, if they suffered a career-ending injury, that would not change anything in the relationship that Coach Jones has with that young man. And um, I think when you create an atmosphere and a culture where you care about your players, you care about their development, and you support them on and off the court in every way possible, then kids want to play hard for you. They yeah. want to learn from you. They want you to coach them. Uh, then they're willing to maybe take a role that they don't want, but they know that the team needs. Uh, but it all starts with that caring factor and building that buy-in and believe in. Mm, yeah. It's fundamental, isn't it, to, uh, to long-term success is, is having that solid background. And, and it's something that you rely on when, when things are good, but also when things aren't so good either as well. 
Absolutely. Yeah, you nailed it there. And that is, and that's how you create that foundation. And that's one of the reasons that I love a program like DeMatha is because they have systems and processes in place. Like there's nothing haphazard. You know, everything um, is premeditated and thought out. You know, they, when Coach Jones comes into practice, I mean, he has a minute by minute practice plan uh, with great detail of exactly what he wants to accomplish that day. What, what things that the team's been doing well that he wants to continue to double down on as well as what things has the team been struggling with that they need to put more work on. Uh, a practice this plan will always have a nice balance between working on the fundamentals, the actual skills of the game. So there will be shooting and ball handling drills, uh, but it'll also have a competitive element uh, where the kids, you know, learn how to compete against each other uh, in a healthy way. And then one of the things that makes DeMatha practices unique is there is always some type of um, game simulation. There's always some type of time and score type scrimmage at the end uh, where there's different scenarios. Well, you know, it'll be the white team versus the blue team. And we'll say, all right, there's a minute 37 on the clock. White team is down three. Blue team, it's your ball. Um, and just let them play out different scenarios where they can, um, based on time and score, work on different out-of-bounds plays, work on different defenses and presses. And that's something that's so important because there's very few times that the DeMatha players will face something in a game that they haven't already faced in practice. Yeah. Now, it might not be identical, but they know when there's a few seconds left and we're inbounding the ball under our basket and we're down two, this is the play we're going to run, and we've run it enough times that we feel really confident that we're going to execute it at a high level. Yeah, yeah. So it's all in the preparation, isn't it? Absolutely. Preparation is vital. Yeah. And along the line too, um, we probably glossed over this a little bit, but I just wanted to spend a little bit of time talking to you about some of the uh, elite NBA players you've worked with too through the um, Nike Skills Academies, the, the McDonald's yep. All-American Game, the Jordan Brand Classic, the NBA Players Association Top 100 Camp, and then the CP3 Elite Guard Camp. Most of those camps are probably just a bit of a dream for a lot of Australian players. But for you, what was the most memorable of these? And you know, what did you walk away with in terms of that, that one thing that you just remembered, wow, that was something special. Well, you know, all of them were memorable for a variety of different reasons. And one of the things that was, was really cool, um, and, and I give full credit in my journey. I, I don't know how many of your listeners have read uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers. Um, and this certainly isn't a spoiler alert, but one of the main <laughs> premises of Outliers is that um, it's not just being in the right place that's important. It also has to be the right time. And yeah. the reason I bring that up is um, I'll be turning 44 in a few days. And that means I graduated high school in 1994. I graduated college in 1998. And when I graduated college, less than a third of MBA teams even had a strength and conditioning consultant at that time. Right. Well, if you fast forward to today, not only does every NBA team have a strength and conditioning coach, they have an entire performance department. Mm. And that's really, really important to bring up because that just shows you um, how fast that industry has moved in the last 30 years. But the reason I share that is when I first got involved uh, after college, there was a lot less competition. There was a yeah. lot less people that was, you know, wanted to do what I wanted to do. And I bring that up because it allowed many doors to open for me with little friction. You know, I was able to talk my way into the NBA Players Association camp because they've never had a strength and conditioning coach work for them before. Uh -huh. I was able to talk my way into the CP3 camp or to the Nike Skills Academies because no one else had even brought up the fact that this might be something that they want to add. So, yes, today... 
I would imagine there's a list and, you know, a, li- a long list and a line around the block of people <laughs> that would want to be the performance coach at those prestigious events. But when I got in, it, it wasn't. And um, now once I got in, I had to prove my value and prove yeah. my worth and show them that I could add something to the amazing experiences they were already creating. And I believe I did that, which is why they kept bringing me back for over a decade. Um, but I, I just want to make sure people know that, that I realized that I was fortunate to get into an industry at a time where it was just ready to explode. And with that, each of those different experiences, you know, I value for a variety of different reasons. And being around high-level coaches and high-level players and for them to pour into me and share things with me was so influential and impactful on my perspective, uh, on the way that I chose to coach. So uh, I just got to learn a great deal. And, mm-hmm. you know, with, with events like LeBron James Skills Academy and, and being able to observe guys like Kobe and Steve Nash, I mean, just, just being a fly on the wall around those guys for a handful of minutes, you'll pick up something and you'll learn something that then you should be able to apply to your coaching craft. Mm. Something that our, my listeners might be familiar with is you were also involved in the um, Pure Sweat basketball program, uh, sure work, working with uh, Drew Hanlon. I actually ran one of his offenses a year or two ago. So. Um, yes. You're still involved there in that space or you, you know, that sort of I'm wound not up? formally involved anymore. Um, when I made the decision to, to leave the basketball space and pursue corporate speaking, I, I formally left Pure Sweat, but I will always be a, a huge advocate a huge friend and a, a, a huge believer in what they do. Um, mm. I think Drew is as good as anyone on the planet uh, for a variety of different reasons. Um, and, and anyone that's not familiar, make sure you, you look up Drew Hanlon and Pure Sweat Basketball. Uh, Drew was a very accomplished player. Um, and that's one of the things that I really respect about him. I don't believe you, have, you need to have been a high-level player to be a good coach. I mean, I know that for a fact. Some of the yeah. best coaches to ever coach did not play at a high level. So I don't think that's a requirement. But I think in Drew's case, it is actually a nice feather in his cap because he's learned how to coach, he's learned how to train, but he always has the empathy of knowing what it's like to be a player and what players go through. And what I love about Drew's approach, um, there's a few things. One, it is incredibly game specific. He's always working on stuff that players would actually need to use in a game, uh, as opposed to just doing drills to do drills. Um, He's very, very game specific in his preparation. So, um, you know, there's not a lot of uh, gimmicks. There's, there's, he's not throwing tennis balls around. He's not uh, using all sorts of, of pads and, and, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those things, but I really like his approach that all we need is a hoop and a ball and a specific set of skills and you're going to get to be a really good player. And the other reason I have so much respect for Drew um, is he spends a good deal of time breaking down film and he uses film to help the players he works with. So he is always studying the game and he has a very cerebral approach to the game and his preparation is second to none. I mean, Drew... Drew watches more film than anyone I've ever heard of in the history of basketball, and he really pours into uh, the players and the clients that he works with. So uh, this has clearly been a, a pure sweat commercial as it should be <laughs> because I, I just think the world of Drew, and I think any player or coach that has an opportunity to subscribe to what Pure Sweat's doing, to get some of their online materials, to attend an event, absolutely should take advantage of that and do that. Yeah, for sure. I'd, I'd, I'd second that. <laughs> awesome. Uh, 
Um, so now, like, uh, let's, let's talk about what you're doing now. You move from, in, like you said, that sort of basketball strength and conditioning field into yep. uh, being a, you know, like a fairly fairly famous now, I'd say, you know, uh, coach, speaker and author. Um, how, how was that transition from basketball to being a professional speaker and what made you decide to take your career in that direction? Well, I've got to tell you a real quick story because you threw the word famous in there and, and you'll actually appreciate this with, with the punchline at the end. So when my, my book, Raise Your Game, uh, it, it's literally just celebrated its one year birthday. It, yeah, happy birthday. Eighth of, uh, thanks, of 2019. So the book's been out for a year. And about a year ago, I was in New York City with my kids, was taking them up to the city and the book had just come out. And the kids said something along the lines of, you know, daddy, you're famous. You have a book. I was like, well, you know, I'm very proud to have a book and, um, you know, I, I'm hoping it helps people, but I'm not famous because I have a book. And they're like, no, you're famous. You have a book. It's in bookstores. And we're walking through Times Square and, and I'm pointing up at these huge billboards <laughs> of famous actors and musicians. And I'm like, guys, look, look up here. These people are famous. I'm just a guy, a, a simple guy that wrote a book. And they're like, no, dad, you're famous. We take about five more steps and three teenagers from Australia come up and go, are you Alan Stein? And I was like, yeah. And they're like, we love all of your videos. We watch them on YouTube. Can we get our picture with you? And my kids just started laughing. They go, see dad, you're famous. These kids are from Australia and they know who you are. And we just, we just laughed. And I, I still to this day try to convince them that I am not famous, but I'm, I'm very fortunate to do something I love. And I'm always incredibly grateful when I find out that it's impacted someone, whether they've read the book or they've seen a video online or maybe attended something that I, I spoke, uh, spoke at. Uh, it just makes me feel good to know that the stuff people have shared with me when I share it with others, that it resonates. And that's really how I look at this move to the corporate space. Uh, I'm still really talking about all of the same stuff that I would talk about to players. I'm just teaching businesses how to apply it to what they do. And for them to know that, um, you know, the, the way that Kobe Bryant would approach practice is the same mindset and they should have the same routines and rituals when they approach a sales meeting or when they approach, um, you know, leading their organization. So uh, I consider myself somewhat of a translator and be able to teach people, even if they don't like basketball, don't watch basketball or don't know anything about basketball, I want to be able to show them how to use those same principles and strategies to be the best version of themselves in their life. Mm. And, and did you have any, like a mentor or someone who, who like you followed or someone that you admired in terms of their, their speaking and, you know, their engagement style that you thought, you know, I, that's just something I think I can do. Oh, absolutely. And it's, it's crazy. We could do a five hour podcast if I was going to list everybody <laughs> that is, that is poured into me. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's really been remarkable and, uh, I'm so thankful for that. And one of the other things that I think is super cool is, um, you know, I can, I've, there've been people that have had a major impact on me that I've never met. I mean, just through, I've read their books and I've watched their videos. And that was one of the reasons that I wanted to write a book because uh, I have so much admiration and respect for authors and for the craft of writing. And that I know there's a handful of books that have had a profound impact on my life. And I just thought, man, if I could write something that could affect another human being in a positive way, that'd be a really cool thing. And that was mm. one of the, the motivators for writing the book. So, you know, I've had some great coaches uh, all the way up through, you know, when I was a young person uh, coming up through college and then I was able to be mentored by some great coaches. Um, it's, 
I'm just very thankful. And then same thing with players. I mean, most people believe kind of esoterically that the coach is always the one teaching the players, but that's not always the case. If you keep your eyes and ears open, players will teach you a ton. Uh, maybe not specifically about the game, but they'll teach you about yourself. Uh, they'll teach you uh, what works and what doesn't work when it comes to creating those connections. And then, of course, when I was able to matriculate up and be a fly on the wall around guys like LeBron and Kobe and Steve Nash and Kyrie Irving and Anthony Davis, um, Stephen Curry, KD, I mean, the list is is vast. Those guys could absolutely teach me a lot just mm. on – effective preparation on the mindsets and rituals and routines of what it takes to perform at a high level, just their approach to excellence. And, you know, uh, even to this day, my pre-speaking routine before I take the stage and what I do for the 24 hours leading up to a talk is very similar in structure to how I would prefer, prepare for a game, either yeah. as a player or as a coach. I mean, everything from you know, studying some film to going through rehearsals and walkthroughs to having a pregame meal to like all of that stuff is very similar. So I prepare for a talk the same way a coach or player would prepare for a game. Yeah. And if you're in front of like four or 500 people, do you ever get nervous? Um, and then how do you handle that? I no longer do. And, and nervous is, you know, I, I still get a little bit of the butterflies and, and I tend to call that excitement rather yeah. than nervousness because, you know, it, it matters to me. I mean, I'm, I only get on stage to be in service of the audience. I mean, mm. it's the, the, the only goal that I have is to make sure that I deliver something that will be memorable and meaningful and impactful for them. So when I'm up there, it's not about me, it's about them. So, of course, I, I'll always have uh, a little bit of butterflies in making sure that I can deliver that in the best manner possible. Um, but I'm a stickler for preparation. You know, we talked about Mike Jones and the Damatha tree of, of preparation. Well, that certainly rubbed off on me. I mean, I'm fully prepared. Uh, I'm well rested. Uh, I've, I've, I'm, you know, I'm just ready mentally, physically, and emotionally anytime I take the stage. Uh, so that, I think, alleviates a lot of the nervousness. And I'm up there talking about something that I'm passionate about mm. and something that I know. And yeah. when I can intersect those two things and I believe it will be of value to the audience, uh, there's no bigger high. I mean, uh, I would imagine that, you know, if, if you're Justin Bieber and you're selling out 50,000, you know, seat stadiums, maybe that's a little bit of a bigger high, but <laughs> I don't care if there's only 10 people in the audience when I'm on stage and I'm sharing something and I can see in their eyes that it's something that's resonating and they're writing stuff down or they're nodding their head or they're smiling and it's, it's registering with me that this is something they're finding helpful. I mean, it is almost an intoxicating feeling and, and I love it. And, uh, yeah, so I would not say I get nervous. I get prepared, and and what's funny is there's there's some different nuances. If I were gonna if I were to come to Australia and talk to a team of fifteen players, where it's a much smaller, intimate setting, it's the same premise, but that's a little different than if I was going to talk to fifteen thousand people that were at a, a major conference. Mm. But the stuff I'm sharing is still the same. It's just the matter in which you deliver it, um, how much of a performance it is kind of slightly changes. And there's pros and cons to both. Uh, I enjoy working with smaller groups because that gives you an opportunity uh, to be a bit more intimate and usually to have a little more interactivity where they can ask specific questions. Uh, whereas if I'm on stage in front of 15,000 people, it's usually more of a one-way 
You know, it, you can't open the floodgates with 15,000 people and say, hey, shout out a question if you have it. That would just be <laughs> pure anarchy and chaos. Uh, so I actually embrace um, both types of settings. Yeah, nice. Yeah, in Australia, in terms of basketball and the sort of teams that a lot of Australian coaches uh, are involved with, we might get about four hours of training, you know, a week luckily, and maybe play a game on the weekend. So yep. if, it's, if it's okay with you, I, I, one of the things I'd like to do is I'll give you a topic. And if, if you were speaking to, say, a group of players and you had yep. a, a 30 to 60 sort of second grab or key message on, on a couple yep. of different areas, I'd be really keen to hear what you'd say. So the first one is um, accountability. I want every player and coach to know that holding someone accountable is something you do for them. It's not something you do to them. Uh, a lot of people tend to view, especially players, that they view accountability and discipline almost as if someone's given them a hard time. And, and I want them to know that uh, when, when a coach or a teammate holds you accountable, that's the best gift they can give you. Uh, when they hold you accountable, that's a way of showing you that they care about you and that they love you and they want to see you perform at the level that you're capable of. And uh, I mean, that's that's so important. Um, a good coach, a good friend, a good parent is always going to want to get the most uh, is for you to get the most out of yourself. And that's what accountability is. And and I'll say that with teams, what makes teams really special is when they don't just have vertical accountability, you know, where the head coach tells the assistants what to do, the assistants tell the players, and it's a straight line down. Great teams also have horizontal accountability where the players hold each other accountable. Uh, the assistants hold each other accountable. Everyone holds the head coach accountable. The head coach holds everyone else accountable. When everyone on the team takes the ownership of accountability, then you've got something unique. And a perfect example would be, let's say uh, a coach is having the team run sprints and one of the players stops three, in three inches short of the line. I want the teammate to say something. I want the teammate to be like, you know, hey, Jack, you missed the line there, man. Come on. We don't do that here. We, we make sure we touch the line every time that we, we sweat the details. And I would want that to come from the players uh, before the coach even said anything. And I think when you can create a culture that has that level of accountability where everyone takes ownership and cares enough about each other to hold each other to the highest standard of excellence, then you've got something really, really, really unique. Yeah, that's, that's great. Uh, next one, mindset. Mindset may be the most important attribute that a player can have. Mm. Um, I mean, certainly in order to play the game at a, at a pretty high level, you have to have the physical components. Um, but mindset is what allows you to actualize your potential and get the most out of your physical ability. So if you're a really good athlete and you're really skilled and you have a great mindset, you're going to be a phenomenal player. If, you have, if you're really athletic and have really good skills and have an awful mindset, you're going to be mediocre at best. So it's really the determining factor. And, and mindset is, is really everything from self-awareness and how well do you know yourself to your grit, uh, to your, you know, uh, the way that you approach the game. It's your philosophy. It's your perspective. Um, in many instances, it's your basketball IQ. I mean, mindset uh, is really the foundation of it all. And, and I believe that the most important things we say as human beings are the things that we say to ourselves. So mm -hmm. that inner dialogue that we all have um, definitely falls under mindset. And, you know, uh, whether it's your mindset going into practice or you have to step to the free throw line and make two free throws to win the game with three seconds left on the clock, what is the mindset at which you approach that? And yeah. uh, high performers have very specific mindsets. And one of the things that makes their mindset 
um, so powerful is they're able to live in the present moment. And, yeah. and in basketball, we call that play present, which means you are in the present moment. You're not worrying about things that happened previously. You're not worrying about things that may happen later. You're just focused on the here and now. Um, yeah. And that's the, the biggest piece of mindset, I believe, is the ability to focus on the present. Yeah, for sure. Um, how about having creativity and making mistakes? Creativity, you know, I, I so to put into context, I have twin sons that will be 10 uh, in March and I have a daughter that will be eight in June. So they're still relatively young. And um, anyone listening that either has young kids or coaches young kids or even remembers when they were a young kid knows that kids are just, uh, I mean, they're just flowing with creativity. They have such wild imaginations and that's so powerful. And, and sadly, for some reason, we tend to lose that as we get older. You know, we're, we're taught that we need to conform. Uh, we're taught that some of the creative things we're doing might be silly or you shouldn't do that. Um, and it's really a shame. I mean, I, I encourage my kids to be as creative as possible. And one of the reasons I bring that up is um, great players are creative with their games. Mm. Uh, I mean, they're, they're creative. They have fun when they're working out by themselves because they'll try things that are a little outside of the box and creative, you know, whether it's a, a move to the basket or a different finish. And I'm not a big, uh, um, you know, a sizzle guy. I mean, I, I believe in the fundamentals. I believe in the basics. Uh, I don't believe a player, <clears throat> excuse me, should be out there dribbling between their legs 72 times. Uh, so I'm not saying that all of this creativity should be applied to the game per se, but I think it's a healthy outlet. Um, mm. I would tell kids all the time when they're working out, you know, about 90% of our workout is going to be focused on the fundamental movements required to get you better. And the last 10%, we're just going to do some fun stuff. You know, there's nothing wrong with kids doing some, some and one mixtape type um, ball handling drills or doing some crazy finishes. Like that's fun and let them be creative. And yeah. that, leads into the second half of your question about being able to make mistakes. And that's why sometimes I think um, adults try to extinguish the creativity in young people because when you're just creative and you're free flowing and you're trying all sorts of different stuff, you're going to make mistakes. I mean, that's just the, that's, that's part of the process and mistakes should be welcomed, not resisted. And, you know, uh, I'll tell a player if, if you go in to do a ball handling workout for 30 minutes and you never lose the ball, you did not get any better. All you did was spend 30 minutes doing something you were currently capable of doing and yep. you did not get any better. So I want you to, to try something with your offhand that you might not be quite accomplished at yet. I want you to try to go so fast that you, you lose the ball because that's the only way you're going to be able to make improvement. So as long as a player is giving their best effort and they're fully dialed in and focused and they have a good attitude, then mistakes are welcome. So I'm yeah. not talking about condoning mistakes of sloppiness or laziness. Uh, we, we don't want those types of mistakes. But, you know, if, if I have a player, a guard, bring the ball down and the, the big man's in the post and they're trying to feed the post and get the big man a look and they make a bad pass that gets picked off, I'm okay with that mistake because they were trying to do the right thing and they just happened to make you know, a bad pass or the wrong pass. And hopefully there's a learning situation there where I could say, you know, you tried to make an overhead pass, but can you see that based on where the big man was, you should have actually made a bounce pass. It would have been easier for him to catch it and the defense would not have been able to steal it. Now that mistake has turned into a learning nugget, has turned into something that hopefully they won't make that mistake again. Mm -hmm. So the only way we're ever going to improve is by making mistakes and then learning from them. Yeah, for sure. 
If you were talking to a, a group of coaches now, you know, one of the things I've, I've uh, had a look at what you've done and, and it's, I think it's a really powerful thing, but the value of storytelling, like how would you explain that to a coach to be able for them to get the best outcomes when they're talking to their players? I, I do believe that storytelling is, is a very sticky way to get your message across that people uh, will remember things that they can, you know, almost feel from a visceral response. And if you can paint a very vivid picture, you know, if you're, you're telling a story about a game and you can describe what the crowd looked like and what the gym smelled like and what the lighting looked like and how loud it was. I mean, the more you can evoke um, all of their senses, the more they can actually visually see what's taking place there, which then will then increase the chance that they're going to remember it. And, you know, we have so much noise in our world today, especially from a digital standpoint. I mean, everyone is vying for our attention. Um, and I think one of the best ways to cut through that clutter is through the power of story, is mm. use an example, you know. So um, if, if you were trying to correct the player that I just mentioned before that made the wrong pass, um, there's a few different ways that I think would be effective. Uh, one would be able to tell kind of a similar story at another time during an important game where a player made a decision uh, that was either right or wrong, but something that would connect the dots between what you're trying to teach them. So for me, you know, since I've had an opportunity uh, to work with some really good players, I use stories all the time and I don't use them to name drop to try to beef up my own ego because as a speaker, it's not about me, but I know that I get instant credibility. If I'm going to tell the story of the first time I saw Kobe Bryant work out, or I'm going to tell a story of what happened the first time I met either Kevin Durant or Stephen Curry, it does a few things. One, especially with young people, it gets them to, to buy in immediately because they're thinking, wait a second, you're going to tell me something that Kobe did or that Steph did. Okay, I'm listening now. So I could make the same point telling them something about myself and they could not care less. But as soon as I bring in the name of a player, now it becomes relevant to them because they look up to those guys. Mm. Uh, same thing from coaching. I mean, it just adds credibility when I can say, I learned this from Mike Jones, the head coach at DeMatha, who's one of the best to ever do it. I'm not saying that to make myself look better. I'm saying it because now I think coaches are going to lean in a little bit and go, okay, yeah, we've heard of DeMatha. Uh, what does Coach Jones do? Um, so uh, story and connecting it to things that is relevant to the audience, whether the audience is 15-year-old male high school basketball players or the audience is uh, a, a top 100 company, it doesn't matter. The power of story will draw them in. And then the key is not just telling a story for the sake of telling a story. There has to be a lesson at the end of it. There has to be a takeaway. Yeah. So. I mean, I've got hundreds of stories that I think are good stories and might even be funny or interesting, but they don't apply to the audience and they don't have a takeaway that's applicable to them. So uh, then I don't share it. I only share things where I can say, here's the moral of the story and here's how this applies directly to you and to your work. Uh, because I don't want to leave any gap. I don't want someone to go, wait a second, you know, I'm a sales professional at this company. Why is he telling me a story about Kobe Bryant? What does that have to do with me? Well, hopefully I tell the story in a way that they understand how it's applicable to them. But just in case I don't, I explain it vividly when I'm done. Here is exactly the lesson you need to learn and how this applies to you. Yeah, that's great. And, and, and I suppose, you know, one of the things too that coaches uh, probably struggle with at times, but, you know, for, certainly it's something they've got to figure out as a coaching philosophy Philosophy is how do we create that culture that, that is something that we're going to live by? And what sort of uh, advice would you give coaches on that? 
first thing you need to do, and, and this is taken straight out of Coach K's book, yeah. who's someone, you know, I've met a few times. Um, he would recognize me if he saw me, but we're certainly not best friends. But talk about someone that has had a profound impact on my life from a mentoring standpoint, but primarily through his books and through the videos that I've seen on him. So um, what I take out of Coach K's book is that you collectively create standards that you don't worry about having this thick rule book um, of things people need to follow, but you collectively get everyone's input, players, coaches, managers, anyone that's going to be a part of the fabric of that team. And you create a list of standards and the standards are going to be basically a code at which everyone lives up to, to create this culture that you want. Um, so let's just say uh, one of the players raises their hand and says, I, I think we should be 15 minutes early to every practice. Um, so that we can be mentally and physically prepared to compete. And then you kind of look around the room at your players and coaches and say, okay, guys, does everyone agree that part of our culture is going to be 15 minutes early? Uh, that'll help us prepare. And it's also a sign of respect that when you show up late to practice, you are disrespecting your fellow teammates and you're disrespecting your coaches. So can we all agree that being 15 minutes early is a standard of this program and of this culture? And assuming everybody agrees, then you can write that one down. That is a standard. Um, mm -hmm. and, and you come up with this, this list. But the key of what makes standards so powerful is they're curated from the group. Everybody has a say and everybody has input. And when people have an input into the work that they're going to do, they're more likely to buy in and believe in as opposed to you coming up with 10 rules, handing a piece of paper to everyone on the team and saying, you do these 10 things. And if you don't, you're going you're gonna to run or you're going to get kicked off the team people will buy in if you create standards. So yep. the first thing is to create standards. Um, and then you have to create, as I mentioned before, that culture of accountability where everyone feels comfortable and open and safe to police each other, to hold them accountable to those standards. And uh, when everyone feels that, now you can move into some role clarity because everyone on the team has to know what their specific role is. You know, players need to know, you know, exactly what am I, what, what's the expectation of me to this team? You know, am I going to be a starter that plays 20 minutes or am I going to be the, the third reserve on the depth chart who doesn't play a lot, but my role is to practice hard every day to push the first and second string, let's say point guard. You know, everyone needs to know their role. Uh, everyone needs to know what's a good shot for them. You know, basketball is not an equal opportunity game. Just because Stephen Curry has the green light to shoot from 30 feet doesn't mean that you do. Uh, so everyone, the coach needs to be crystal clear on what everyone's role is and what's a good shot for them. And that needs to be transparent with the rest of the team. Mm -hmm. You know, um, the rest of the team needs to know that, hey, so-and-so is our best three-point shooter and so-and-so is our best back-to-the-basket post player and uh, we don't want to confuse the two. And once you've created these very specific roles and you've opened up channels of effective communication and you've created this horizontal um, accountability system and everybody's living up to the standards, when you mix all of that together in a big bowl, that is your culture. Yeah. That's what culture is. I mean, culture is the alignment between belief and behavior. Uh, you've got the belief of what it takes to be an elite level program, but then how do you actually behave on a daily basis? And everything that, that uh, any person on the program does can fall into one of two buckets. It's either something that you accept or it's something that you correct. Yeah. Everything a player does, if it's behavior that is in alignment with the values and the mission and the standards, then that's behavior we want to see more of, so we praise it. If it's behavior that is not in alignment, it's actually going in the other direction, then that's behavior that we need to correct. And we correct it 
with empathy and with compassion. And, but we, we let someone know, you know, that is not an acceptable shot for you to take. There is no gray area. Every shot a player takes is either one that we want them to take or one that we don't want them to take. And we have to praise the ones that do and we have to correct the ones that don't. Yeah, for sure. I guess, you know, one of the things we've, we've been talking a little bit about is, is athletes uh, and their well-being and, you know, their mindset and accountability. One of the things that's, you know, still very much talked about these days is, is the coaches, you know, well-being and how the coach uh, might sort of deal with work-life balance and, and just how, you know, what they do in terms of just looking after themselves. And I noticed you're a little bit into daily meditation and, and you do a little bit of intermittent fasting. Would you be able to talk a little bit about that and uh, how you got into those sort of things and, and would you recommend it? Most certainly. You know... <laughs> I have so much admiration and respect for coaches. I believe, you know, that that coaches and teachers are the epitome of servant leaders. And I'm so thankful um, to be in the coaching fraternity. And I don't care if you coach a group of six-year-olds or you coach a professional team. Just by wearing the label coach, I appreciate you and I respect you. And one of the things that I found is many times coaches get so caught up in serving others, serving their players and, and serving their assistants and serving their spouses and their own children at home. And if they teach, serving their students. And, and as much as I applaud the, the, you know, how noble they are to serve others, they make the grave mistake of forgetting to serve themselves. Hmm. And they end up sacrificing their own health and well-being for other people. You know, uh, any coach listening to this that coaches at a competitive level has probably sacrificed sleep to watch extra film, uh, yep. has probably sacrificed eating healthy because they're on the road recruiting, um, and has sacrificed their own personal workouts because there's just not enough time. They've got to put in a few extra minutes in designing, designing the practice plan or the game strategy. And once again, I applaud the nobility of wanting to put others first but I want to make sure every coach listening to this, you need to know that if you don't take care of yourself first, then you can't pour into others to the degree that you're capable of. Hmm. Uh, which means if you're not taking steps to be your best self mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually, if appropriate to you, then you're not the best coach that you're capable of. So this is going to sound like I'm flipping the house upside down, but I'm, I want to do that. If you're a coach listening to this and you don't make your own health and well-being a priority, you are actually being selfish. I'm going to say that again because it's that important. If you are not making your own health and well-being a priority, you are being selfish because it means you're showing up to workouts, to practices, and to games as less than your best self. Mm. And your players and your assistants need you to be the best version of yourself. That's what they're counting on. After all, you want them to show up as the best version of themselves. You know, yeah, that's right. How angry and upset would a coach be if their star player showed up for a game and he didn't sleep the night before? He didn't eat breakfast that day. He didn't do any of his pregame shoot around or he didn't do his walkthrough. Uh, he left his notebook in his locker so you know he didn't study the game plan. I mean, if he showed up that unprepared, you'd be angry. You'd say, you, you just gave our team less of a chance to win because you were selfish enough to not take care of yourself. And the exact same thing is true for coaches. So mm. I understand the time constraints. You know, um, you, you may be serving students during the day and you're serving your players in the afternoon and you're serving your own family at night. But all of those people want you and need you to be your best self. So if you can 
make an effort to eat a little bit healthier. If you can make an effort to have 15 to 20 minute exercise sessions, um, you know, most days of the week, uh, if you can find some alone time to recharge your battery and either read or meditate, you know, find what works for you. Yeah. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, a daily 10 minute meditation practice and intermittent fasting and working out. These are all things that work well for me. Um, and I'm not saying other people need to do those things, but I do want any coach listening to find what it is that fills your bucket because you have to show up every day as your best self. And if you don't, you're actually being selfish and in, in giving your team less of a chance to be successful. Yeah. I think that's great advice and, and very practical too. You know, like, uh, like you said, if you're not looking after yourself, how can you be your best? Yeah, without question. And it's, it's an easy trap to fall into. I mean, most coaches take a little bit better care of themselves in the off season when they don't have the same day to day grind or schedule. So they're a little better in the off season. And then once the season starts, you know, it's, it's late nights and no sleep and fast food and staying in front of screens and skipping workouts. And during the season is when you need to be at your best. So it's actually, it's upside down that they're actually, they have better health habits in the off season and they have worst health habits during the season when mm. during the season is technically what matters most. They've got yeah. it backwards. Yeah, yeah. Um, now speaking of being busy, um, obviously you've been super busy with your speaking engagements, but you're also cranking up your uh, Raise Your Game podcast. Um, do you yes. want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I've been a huge uh, fan of just the pon podcast genre for many years. I've got numerous ones that I devour regularly. Um, I've hosted two shows in the past uh, that are no longer, uh, I no longer host them. One is called The Hardwood Hustle, uh, which is still going on and is an outstanding program uh, and show run by Adam Bradley and TJ Rosine. Uh, but I was a co-host on that show for a couple of years. And then I started up the Pure Sweat Basketball Show and did that show for a couple of years. And then now have started my third podcast, uh, The Raise Your Game Show, um, which I, I intentionally have designed in a way that I want it to be of benefit to both coaches and to those in the business world that I'm, I'm trying to highlight things that happen in sports that those in business can learn from as well as highlight things in business that those in sport and in coaching can learn from. And every season is a little bit different. Uh, so one season is already out. Season one, that is, is already out in its entirety. Uh, season two is now dripping out uh, two episodes per week. So um, yeah, I'm having a blast and anyone listening, you might want to go type raise your game show with Alan Stein Jr. into your search window. Uh, however you listen to podcasts and, and would be honored if you take a listen. Nice. Yeah. I, like I said, I can recommend it. I've had a listen to all your episodes so far and it's, it's really awesome. good stuff. Yeah. So Alan, I know it's morning over there, but what, what makes you smile when you get up in the morning these days? Uh, several things. I mean, one, I'm, I'm just kind of wired and I have wired myself to be a positive, optimistic guy. I mean, one, I'm so grateful that I'm able to do something that I find meaning in and that I love doing. And I hope that every coach wakes up thinking, man, I've got an opportunity today to impact other people that, that I could say or write or do something that's going to make their life a little bit better. And that's something that really makes me smile. You know, whether it's something that I might be able to do for my own children, uh, whether it's something like being on this podcast where someone who has never heard of me before might take a listen. And one thing I said, say, resonates with them enough to make a slight change and they see an improvement in their life. Uh, maybe somebody listening decides to go to Amazon and, and purchase my book and they read the book and that has an effect on them. Like I just smile knowing I have an opportunity today to pour into others and to change their life. And, and that's something that, that really warms my heart and makes me smile regularly. Excellent. And uh, what, what absolutely excites you the most right now? 
the the pursuit i mean well I, I still you know fatherhood excites me tremendously like i i i love now i'm very amicably divorced so my kids don't live with me full time but i have them about half of the time and you know uh, this evening uh, after school i'll pick my kids up and we'll get some homework done and we'll go to dinner and then my one son luke has a boxing lesson tonight uh so We'll watch him take boxing. And I love just sitting back and watching my kids do something that brings them joy and happiness and to see them do something they enjoy. Uh, so, so that's one half. Uh, the other half, um, I'm, I'm committed to becoming the best speaker that I'm capable of. And I really study and dissect the speaking craft. And I'm always looking to refine my content, you know, my stories, my lessons, my stats. But I also work really hard on my delivery and the way that I can share these messages and, you know, can I have a captivating delivery on stage or in a locker room and can I share stuff that is practical and actionable for people to use and the pursuit of mastery of that craft really excites me and I say pursuit because I don't believe that one ever masters something like that. I don't even think one masters the game of basketball. I mean, certainly guys like Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan uh, have come pretty darn close to mastering it, but even there's still minor nuances that even they would admit they could have been better on. And, you know, you take someone like a Morgan Wooten or a Coach K, I mean, they're, they're legends, but they haven't quite mastered it. There's still things they can improve. And even if I keep professionally speaking for the next 30 years, I certainly hope that I improve and I certainly hope that I can become a very polished and, and captivating speaker, but I'll never feel like I've arrived and that I've mastered the craft. It's the pursuit of it that gives me so much excitement. Yeah, uh, that's excellent. Have you got any plans on coming to Australia anytime soon? I don't, and I wish that I did because I've never been. And I know how big basketball is there. Um, and, and I would love to be able to do something. I mean, you know, I've, I've met so many folks from Australia, not just the three kids that found me in New York, but you know, many times <laughs> at my coaching clinics, uh, coaches would be here from Australia. And, and I would love to make something happen. Um, I have found, and, and this will be kind of a quick plug, um, I found that sometimes um, it can be financially restraining for a, a youth program or a high school team or even a university team to be able to afford the cost to bring me to Australia. Um, but there may be a business listening or someone listening may know someone in business because I know that the corporate groups have deeper pockets and bigger checkbooks. So there might be an opportunity for a business or two to bring me to Australia to work with their companies. And then while I'm there, I would love to piggyback and, and speak to coaches or speak to players. Um, and then, of course, uh, there's always the opportunity to do video calls. Uh, I know yeah, you and I are doing sure. an audio call right now, uh, but I have spoken to teams all over the world who just say, we're going to put all of our players in the locker room. Uh, we're going to do a Skype video call or a, a, a Zoom call. And it's almost as if I'm there. I'm still mm. looking in the player's eyes and I'm still talking to them directly. And that's one of the reasons technology is so cool that I can actually look in the eye of a player and speak to them. And I'm, I don't know, 5,000 miles away. I'm not yeah, very good at geography. It's excellent, isn't it? So, Alan, um, uh, again, I just wanted to thank you again for your time today. Like, uh, it's truly inspiring listening to you and your energy and your passion for what you're doing. And uh, certainly wish you all the best with what you're doing with your, your speaking engagements. How can my listeners or the Australian basketball coach listeners keep in touch with what you're up to? 
Well, there's a few things they can do, and please know the feeling is mutual. I mean, I, I can't thank you enough for your interest and your support and for allowing me to share what I'm passionate about with your listeners. You know, this is, this is your baby, and, and you're allowing me to come in and hold your baby for a few minutes, so I appreciate that. Um, if folks are interested in anything I do from a speaking standpoint, they can go to allensteinjr.com. Uh, if you're interested in my book uh, or what I've, I've created some uh, auxiliary materials, I have a facilitator guidebook and a team member workbook that goes with my book, Raise Your Game, and is a way to actually bring the lessons to life that I teach in the game. Uh, you can just go to raiseyourgamebook.com. Uh, I can offer a massive discount if anyone wants to purchase a copy for their entire team. And then I'm just at Allenstein Jr., uh, on Instagram, on Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, and on Facebook. So um, if, if any of this conversation resonated with you, uh, would love to have you follow along on social and uh, drop me a line. And then as we mentioned, of course, we've also got the Raise Your Game show, uh, which is a podcast, uh, which will soon be turning into an actual show with video as well, oh, which nice. is why I didn't call it the Raise Your Game podcast. Yeah. Um, so yeah, any of those outlets, I would certainly be honored for someone to follow along. And, and lastly, if you like the type of stuff I'm sharing, if you want to join our email list, uh, you can just text the word bonus. Oh, actually, you know what? That's not going to work. Hang on. I take it back. I learned the hard way that that code only works when I'm in the continental United States. All right. So scratch what I just said and just go to the website and opt in, uh, enter your email address. I'll send you a few free goodies and then you'll get emails that we send out three times per month. So I know that was a long, long plug, but I'm hoping folks uh, find this information useful and helpful and, and want to follow along all the way from down under. Yeah, I'm sure they will because uh, you've, got, you've got a lot to share. And like I said, I think you know, the energy that you have is just amazing. I'm, I'm really appreciative of what you're doing and also just the opportunity to have a chat. So uh, thanks again, Alan, and uh, all the very best for, for, the, for the future until we talk again. You got it, my friend. Thank you. Okay, thanks very much. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. You can get in touch with me through my email at australianbasketballcoach at gmail.com. That's australianbasketballcoach, all one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. Also, follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at Coach, and also on Facebook with Australian Basketball Coach. So uh, looking forward to hearing from you and thanks again for listening.